From Daylight Interactive and Media 3 Limited, I'm Kazuki Kiba. And I'm Tara Hori. And this is Sayonara Baseball. This is a podcast where you and I find unseen baseball gems by analyzing them alongside different trends, news, and motivation behind many moves around the league today. And we try to make something that seems boring about baseball actually really awesome. Today, we discuss the topic of postseason teams. What's the key to success in winning the playoffs? Here they are, one strike away, one out away. 3 2. Washington Nationals are world champions for the first time in franchise history. You saw the 2019 playoffs, right? I did. I actually watched most of the games. Uh, not every game, but watched most of the games. There are a lot of like great plays that went on. Like This, I think, postseason was one of the most exciting ones yet. After the 2016 postseason run, which I think, you know, was pretty pivotal. You know, some of my favorite plays uh, from that uh, whole series might have been was Nationals. I think they did a really great job with their rosters. I think some of the key plays they had were, was their bats. Some um, Three clutch bats, actually. Howie Kendrick uh, hitting that Grand Slam in Game 5 of NLDS against the Dodgers. This is deep to center field. Bellinger's back. It's a grand slam! Howie Kendrick with a 10th inning grand slam to break it open! But I think the most important one was uh, were the home run solo shots by Rendon and Soto against Kershaw in the 7th inning. Wow. I mean, I want to say a lot about that series, but I want to revert to the series that I really enjoyed, which was the Yankees and the Astros. Yeah, of course. Game six of the Yankees. And I think one of the pivotal situations was Chapman throwing a slider and Altuve hitting Grand Slam was a game changer. I think a lot of people thought that the Yankees should have won that game and have gone to game seven, but unfortunately that didn't happen. And prior to that, the bat with the Yankees in the LeMay, no, no, I'm sorry, the top half of the night and LeMayhew fighting off what? Robert Ozuna. And I said, wow, this guy is a baseball player and he hit that home run and then it's a game on again. Done in a Yankee uniform is hit. 3-2 pitch. Fly ball into right, back at the wall, this ball is gone for a home run! And this game is tied! And so that was, I thought, was one of those pivotal games, but unfortunately, the Yankees didn't advance, and Houston did, and they played a better game. Yeah, I think that whole series kind of tells you about the mentality of the game. It's not just analytics anymore. It's about how you feel for the game. And if you're too confident and cocky, it could take you to another route. If the Yankees played the way they did in game one of that series, I think it could have been a totally different series. But I think that gave them too much of a confidence boost that they kind of underestimated a lot of the game. And I think the in-game management was also pretty bad where you just didn't take the hottest hands. I think the other pivotal game i thought and uh i don't want to say pivotal game uh, i think the game that the washington nationals they beat up 
the Astros, I think game two in Houston, I think Kurt Suzuki hit a double and they just, I think they they blow it open, I think. Yeah, I think it was a really tight game. Like, I I think Kurt Suzuki hit a home run off Verlander. That's that's right. He hit a home run off Verlander and it it was like a one run game. And then after that, everything blew up where they, uh, once like Houston brought their bullpen arms, they just could not hold on to the lead and everyone was making contact. It wasn't just power. It was just contact after right. contact. And I think it blew up like a 10 run lead, right? It did. And I think at that point, a lot, I you could see that the Astros were in shock, especially playing at home. And now with all that so-called cheating. The scandal. The yes. scandal, which has come out in the news. I, I think they were in shock. I, I, I think they thought that they were going to take at least the first two games, but they didn't. And so, you know, it, they didn't keep the game close. They didn't. Um, I think they just, I think after the ALCS, they grew a little bit too overconfident that they had it. And even the fans didn't think the National Leagues, any of the teams that's coming out, wouldn't like be any of the AL teams. Right. Because of the record and how they played over throughout the regular season. I mean, this was a really, really, really good World Series. I mean, you're talking about two teams that were trying to take advantage of home field advantage, and it actually somehow didn't work out that way, right? It became a road field advantage. Instead. Right, exactly. You, know, you look at Houston going into Washington and, and taking three straight was also a surprise to me right we, you know with definitely with the nationals having the pitcher advantage and especially no, no, at, at home at home um and they were actually beaten up if you look at that whole series um itself to actually the runs how many runs were scored surprising the home team barely scored any runs it was up to two runs that was a max amount of runs that the home team scored in the road team instead scored more than six runs per game which was uh, kind of insane because you don't really see that in other world series usually if you're at home you score a lot more runs at home so maybe the houston nastros were actually cheating in in washington dc <laughs> i mean you know like this conspiracy could go in other ways but i think it's the fact that washington kind of became too overconfident and cocky mm-hmm. and i think we talk about this a lot where once you know hitters are too overconfident they're just going to swing for defenses and i think that's that was very evident in that whole series what i thought i saw in the last two games uh, i think uh what i saw again nationals they went back to strangely they hit a few more home runs but i think they were really swinging for line drives which i think is the key element is winning the world series i don't know maybe i'm wrong but you know, guys like Adam Eaton and you know Rendon, he he does hit home runs, but he does. Rendon was trying to drive. Ren- Rendon, I'm sorry, Rendon. Yeah, Rendon was trying to drive a lot of runs, even uh, Soto to right. a extents. Right. He wasn't trying to hit for the fences as much. And I think that played to their advantage. Uh, and unlike Houston, I think the pressure going back to Houston, they felt they need to hit home runs again, and you know it, it kind of backfired on them, right? They did hit some home runs, but I think. Some of their hottest hands became kind of cold. Right. Especially Altuve, I think. Altuve, yeah, I think he did have a really good series, but uh, I mean, ultimately. I think Altuve got too um, high pitch happy because he does love that uh, high fastball. If you look at all the games, like even against Tampa, the Yanks, even Nationals, he loves swinging for the high, high pitch. And I think he got overconfident with that. And I think the, a lot of the Nationals pitchers, mm-hmm. like Doolittle, Strasburg, Daniel Hudson, who was struggling that series, used that to the extent and really took advantage of him on that part. Um, the one player that I thought, which I was completely disappointed during 
the World Series was Alex Bregman. I, I certainly thought that he would have fairly good series. And I don't think he, yes, he can hit home runs, but he actually barrels a lot of good line drives and he didn't come up with too many important hits until probably what the last two games i don't know if i'm I... he, he did hit a, like a two-run shot in game two against strasburg so he had some moments where it was likely that he was going to come around after being really ice cold in mm-hmm. both uh, tampa and the uh yankee series so there, there were flashes and signs where he was doing well but i think it was bregman too he got overly too cocky throughout because he was really good especially against um when they were on the road at nationals park and by game six, I think he got way too cocky. He had that bat flip again where he was holding on to the bat. Oh, that's right. The bat flip is issue. Huh? Like bat, carrying the bat all the way to uh, first base, thinking that they had the game. And I think that whole vibe showed that Houston was way too overconfident. And sometimes, you know, you can't be overconfident in these games and just got to stay in the zone. And I think that was the issue with Bregman. The other two players that I, the other expectation I had, a player that, should have influenced the game, but the Nationals had his number was Carlos Correa. I thought he, I mean, he killed the Yankees, I think. He had his moments. He had his moments. He had his key moments. hits, yes. He yes. hits is what I want to say. But he, the Nationals pretty much contained him. And I think the other one, I think, Springer. I thought Hinch, Springer as well. Springer was solid, but he did not hit in, well, he got, caught in the wrong way right. in key moments. I think the Nationals defense really held him down. And then I think there's one player that I thought they just had him too long, I think, uh, for the Houston Astros was um, Alvarez. I, Jordan, Jordan yeah, Alvarez, Yeah, yes. he, looked, he looked really like a rookie. And yeah, maybe he did hit that one home run, but ultimately I think he, they just stuck with him too long. I know? think he was told too lost, I think, at the right. play. Overmatched. Yeah. If you look at every series, he was like the easy out of the of any series. You look at whether you look at the Tampa series or the Yankee series or Nationals, he was guaranteed strikeout or some sort of fly out. Right. But I mean, going back to the Nationals, um, Howie Kendrick. Wow. I was writing an LCS MVP and LCS MVP and career New York Yankees killer, which I always, being a Yankee fan, I hate to say it, but he killed the Yankees all the time. And I was just, wow, here's a guy who's put himself back on the map again. Um, he had a really soft season. He had over 300 for the Nationals. Despite being a bench piece, like he would consistently played and had really key moments throughout the regular season, uh, especially after the whole 19 and 31 skid that the Nationals started off with. He was one of the keys to really bring back that offense and and pitchers wise i again i would say strange enough daniel hudson was didn't never impress me as a seasonal pitcher but he just you know he grounded his way in and uh, he was able to keep the bullpen from imploding i, I don't know if you're what you thought about that i think um his story is intriguing because he started off dfa'd from a team and then he went to Toronto and somehow put together a solid season and then got traded to Nationals. And he essentially became the closer of the Nationals, overtaking Doolittle's spot. Um, Doodle, Doolittle definitely was gutsy, I thought. But I think he served a purpose. Uh, he wasn't that bad, I think. I, I think, you know, I was very much on the edge whenever he was on 
he was pitching. It's not that he's a bad pitcher. He's a really good reliever. It's a fact that Houston is very much known to be very good at hitting fastballs. Although the stats this year kind of shows that Houston did not hit really fast fastballs that well as breaking pitches. So mm-hmm. maybe the Doolittle thing was actually a huge advantage for the Nationals. Yeah, I, I mean, if you only have one relief pitcher, I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, you have to keep on throwing him out and hopefully he doesn't get shell-shocked and... I think um, uh, Dave Martinez did a great job balancing that bullpen out somehow. Or I think, you know, you got to give props to the starters. Um, they had one of the best rotations coming in that could match Houston. I think the problem with the whole postseason series is the mm-hmm. fact that no team could actually match Houston's um, rotational prowess of Cole, Verlander, and Granke. And the only right. team that was really able to do that was Nationals. Right. Was Scherzer, Strasburg. Corbin and Annabelle Sanchez, bunch of Cy Young Award candidates right. facing off each other. Wide drive, base hit to right. Battle score one, battle score two as the ball gets away from Grisham and right. That's going to score three runs, and the Washington Nationals have the lead. What do you think actually makes a good postseason team? So we're looking at teams, maybe it could be the Yankee dynasty of 1996-2000, or... We could talk about the every even year Giants from this decade, or even the sporadic dominance of Cubs, Astros, Red Sox, or Dodgers. Okay, so let me start on this one. Since I like to follow minor league baseball, I do believe that the draft and the international signings are very pivotal today. And not to say that it wasn't in the past, going back to the Yankees and in, in the 90s but the trade for young players uh has become really important and so when you have a good combination of your own minor league system the draft and international signings plus acquiring that young talent from another team especially during the trade season it can change your entire makeup with you know looking forward especially you know you can game it so that well okay you have a window of two three years to be getting to a certain level and then having all that playoff bound energy and kind of being that playoff mix for three or four years i mean let's we can use houston astros as a very good example yeah or let's just say the boston red sox um i mean yeah they're example. in their they were in their third thir- right. third year by their world series right. like 2016 2018 yeah. that's three years right chicago as you as you mentioned uh, yeah 2015 to 20 i mean they have four years i mean i don't count the wild card game too much as right. a playoff but right 2015 to 2017 right. let's look at it that way right so the combination of acquiring the young talent and also you know when you when it comes to the trade deadline acquiring those key players and granted i think some of the players do make a big difference right we can talk about every team going back the past let's say our, our real early our recent knowledge the last 15 years you know i could say yeah justin verlander joining the astros he could have easily been on another playoff team and could have been with the yankees he could have gone to the red sox um or look at chris sale Crisell was, was it an off-season or? That was off-season. It was an off-season maneuver. And Dave Dombrowski, known, you to know. To gut the, you know, the farm system just to make a win-now situation. Exactly. Same way that he did was uh, Detroit. Yes. And so it's a combination of those things. I think there's no one ingredient 
when I say ingredient, a formula, I think the formula constantly changes, but it's an evolvement of what the, what all those uh, strategies and ingredients should be. I think definitely right now, this whole prospect hoarding is definitely the key right now because a lot of the teams don't want to be caught with these big contracts. And so if they can minimize that and have all these young players in a short window, they can kind of piece together who to let go in their arbitration years or trade away in general, right before their contract is contract up. Is up or acquire and, and make the numbers work. Like you said, I think the biggest key for me as well as draft picks, yes. having the best minor yes. league. Because I think the trade is a more of like the final piece of whether or not you need to push or not. Exactly. Same with any acquisitions. It's if you need it or not during that window. But if you look at all the past uh, dynasty, let's say, yes. of dominant playoff teams, it's a three-year window. I think the Yankees uh, in the 90s got kind of lucky where they were dominant from 1996 to yes. 2003, where they were make, make, winning pennants every year, except for 2002 was against the Angels, but that was an outlier for them. But I think most teams don't have that window. Like every team, especially in this decade, was high analytic. They all have a three-year window. Right. And that's why you can see, a, like, I would say they were the blueprint for a lot of these teams in the past 15 years. But it's gotten really good where they're realizing that, and I'm going to just go back to what you're saying is that they use that last they use a tread line for or or the off season to make that last piece work you can see a lot of the even today uh, this year's world series in the playoffs a lot of the teams were pretty young with a lot of ta- young talent even for um a team like uh the nationals i mean the nationals right. might have been probably really old yeah pretty old I, I think their makeup was pretty much veteran like cabrera yes Old player, second baseman, yes. um, Howie Kendrick, very yes. old. And you, Max Scherzer, like that was their free agent signing of a while back. That's, that's actually actually an outlier that's right. paying them off. I but. mean, the Yankees might have been the oldest team, but if you look at the core of the team right now, they're a fairly young team. I think most majority of them are under 30 years old. Yeah, except for only, only some who's like over, a little bit over 30 or 30. Right. So I think, um, yeah, you're right. The makeup needs to be young if you want to be successful. And if you look at every team it's a three-year window where you have a core and then maybe you have a trade acquisition during the mid-season or yes, off-season absolutely. that's usually one or two players that helps you and i think it kind of shows that big contract doesn't really guarantee you anything has the time it could yes. like maybe tip you over the balance of one way or the other but it doesn't like if you look at key acquisition um let's start with the cubs Arona chapman Yes. That pushed them one way, that pushed them one way or the other. Without Chapman, would they have really gone through World Series? Uh, probably not. I, probably not. But the price of Chapman was when the Yankees acquired. It was, steep. it was steep. And the reason you know the reason why it was so steep was because Dombrowski set up that standard when he got yes. Kimbrel from the Padres yeah. that he had to give up two highly touted prospects yes. to get a high caliber reliever. Strange and, enough, Theo Epstein also took that model as well. And so, you know, sometimes it takes teams a little longer to adapt. You know, we're talking about playoff teams and I know we've, like San Francisco Giants. I think the Giants is an outlier for the successful team because they want it with just their core. They didn't technically have in-season trade uh, acquisition or off-season acquisition that really boosted. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a balance of 
having their young core, they had Buster Posey and Madison mm-hmm. Bumgarner, both rookies in 2010. They somehow made it through a series and carried that team. Right. But I think it's not only having that five, two, two to three core pieces that's going to make you push over, but I think it's also the veteran, like a very gutsy, versatile veteran. I think that year they have Marco Scudero or mm-hmm. Benji Molina. Right. It's like a couple like of those big pieces that actually pushed him somehow in those players are very, um, you know, experienced in their professional career and they knew how to like play the game once they hit the playoffs. So I think having that makeup and that balance is probably key to right. having a good playoff team. Going back to the character of these so-called teams uh, and, and the makeup of how they put together, obviously general managers and putting into that plan is really important. And the hoarding and keeping, I think Houston has been pretty good at maintaining this level. And the Dodgers too. I know we talked about the Dodgers or the ability to just every year have at least two or three players that they can pick up and knowingly that they can get a young guy who's ready from the minor leagues to step in and, and play and not have to worry about paying all that extra. I mean, all that money for all these, I don't want to say over the hill players, but declining players. I think you're right that there's ways to just bring up your minor league call up right. and then put them in a playoff roster. Like I think in 2017, like Astros, they had a very young Alex Bregman yes. who barely played major league ball and he was helping them in the playoffs. Right. Same with the Cubs. Honestly, the Cubs, they did have Chapman, but I think some of their biggest cops mm-hmm. are Baez and Contreras. Right. They did not have a full season in the majors, and they were the key pinch hitters that they brought in the clutch hits. Right. Especially against all the series, especially NLDS against the Giants. Without their key hits, they mm-hmm. wouldn't be in the World mm-hmm. Series. Right. So I think we, what we're starting to see is that these windows of, which is actually really good. I think there's going to be more parity in baseball going forward. I think we talked about in the past about teams tanking. And at some point we discussed that I felt that yes, tanking is part of a strategy, but at some point all the teams have tanked so quickly and so fast, there has to be some parity. All of a sudden you can't tank anymore. All of a sudden everyone is developing right into some sort of piece one way or another. another. One key, like I said, even though it's a contention window is three years, Kansas City Royals, let's look at them. Yes. They were technically a two year window because they only made the playoffs two straight years and then they collapsed and the reason why they made it in the first place was because of their young core of Lorenzo Kane, Mike Moustakis, right. Alex Gordon, and like a couple other pieces. And the only reason why they went so deep in the 2015 playoffs so what, and they won the World Series is because they acquired Johnny Cueto and Ben Zobrist. You need that one, two, one or two hot hands to push you forward. And they found those like hot hands to do it. Same was, let's say, the Boston Red Sox. The reason they really went overboard was training for Nathan Evaldi, that one right. piece that pushed him over. So I think picking up those underrated scrap pieces somehow, you know, could push them over. Because if they could have one or two ga- good games in a playoff, that's you're talking about maybe a 30% possibility right. of winning more games. Right. I mean, we can, you know, there are a couple teams that I thought that should have been in the playoffs uh, this year. but Cleveland. Cleveland. I thought the New York Mets should have been. I think New York Mets should uh, should have been the one in the wild card, not Brewers. Right. Brewers got Absolutely. just lucky. Um, right. They did not have the right pieces to win, and it showed. And I think these two teams, as we speak, still have that ingredient of what we just talked about. They do have the, the young talent. They do have the players. Do they have the manager? 
that's questionable. I think I do think Francona is a very good manager. I don't think the actually the problem was the Cleveland Indians. Um, I think they're ingredient. They have a really good pitching. I just don't think they have the bats, or they know right. how to develop a good bats. I think the last really good bats they developed are Jose Ramirez, Lindor, and possibly Michael Brantley. And and Brantley is with Houston. Houston, but it doesn't you know I'm he. Cleveland may just be one season away from from closing that gap with the Twins again. I mean, the Twins came out of nowhere. They embraced new ideas and brought in a little more analytics and changed their philosophy about hitting and pitching. And all of a sudden now they have this great window of, of competing for the next three or four years. Uh, management is really important to the overall picture of some of these teams. Coming up after the break, Taro and I discuss what made this Nationals team so successful and who we think is the best team of this decade. Welcome back to Saranara Baseball. I'm Kazuki Kiba. And I'm Taro Hori. After we talked about the key recipe for postseason team, I kind of want to talk about, so was this postseason exciting one? What made the Nationals so successful? So um, I think some of the keys that we talked about that makes a really good postseason team is really good starting pitching and Nationals really had that key cog with Scherzer and Strasburg. So what else do you think made the Nationals, this Nationals team better than the previous playoff bound Nationals team? Well, let's just add one more pitcher. We, let's throw in Patrick Corbin. I think that was, that came out of nowhere. I think everyone thought that he was going to be a New York Yankee, but or he was going to another, maybe the Phillies. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it's not just two. They had three, but they took the third pitcher and put him in the bullpen, which they lacked. And that was part of the success. Um, and it worked for them in the, in the playoffs. I think, I think the other thing is um, the Nationals had a good set of platoon players, uh, much more balanced than the other playoff on teams. And they played very good situational baseball, I think. It, it, we talked about their ability to drive in uh, runs when they could. Um, that was really important. And their pitchers were able to pitch deep into the games, which in the playoffs became very important instead of the whole Kansas City Royals go like to the bullpen, bullpen game, right. the, the bullpen game, which was everyone was talking about the bullpen game. The Nationals the, didn't. The complete opposite traditional baseball. I think the interesting part is the is the reason why the bullpen game doesn't work is like we mentioned, especially with the Yankees right. series, they get too overexposed. Right, the hitters get too used to them that they only have one or two pitches, so hitters could guess immediately. Right. While with starters, they have four or five, especially it was a caliber of Strasburg and Scherzer, right, Cy Young Award candidates, Cy Young winners. You're not going to be able to guess what's coming, and it's right. filthy even if you know it. I think the other thing with the Nationals, I think especially in the playoffs in the World Series, is they were able to make the adjustments quickly. And I think in terms of small sample sizes, yes, it was strange that the home teams didn't have the advantage, but especially with the cheating that happened at home for Minnesota. Exactly, yeah. they they were able to make the adjustments when they knew that they were on the brink of being in trouble. You know, there was only really one close game in that World Series. And it was really the first game, but all the other games were not very close at all. Uh, I think they tended to play within themselves and play, I want to say, outside of themselves in, in a sense that they got away from their strategy and then they got back into strategy when they needed to. So I think with the key was the Nationals. I think the biggest stats like we looked at besides having the two big aces 
was also the fact that they were able to have a high BABIP, so which reflects to having a low strikeout rate. And we actually did a big deep dive into the team chemistry to see what made them so successful was the fact that they barely struck out. Yeah, I, I, I think I totally agree with you. I think uh, there, I think they had a few guys who struck out more than 100, and we uh, talked about that. Um, but I think if you look at the platoon players, they definitely put the ball in play, and I, that became really important. I mean, part-time players. Exactly. Kurt Suzuki. Exactly. Hendricks, Para, Cabrera, Cabrera. Definitely platoon if Howie right. Kendrick couldn't DH. So when they had that opportunity to play, you know, whether, whether it was in the regular season or the playoffs, they didn't strike out a whole lot. They definitely put the ball in play. And I think that was a really key, important part of the Nationals getting to where they are. And even Michael A. Taylor had the key moments. Yes. Yes. Um, and in a certain extent, not having Bryce Harper on the team uh, kind of helped them achieve what they needed to do. I think the key, if we really, we, we dove into other postseason teams to see what made them so successful, and we tried to find a comp with the Nationals. And I think the one key we realized was the fact that you got to have an MVP, your MVP caliber player was less less than 100 strikeouts for that season. And in their case, it was Anthony Rendon. Yes. He struck out less than 100. Yes. And if you go to every playoff, like post World Series winners team, their MVP had a very low strikeout rate, except for the um, Chicago Cubs, was Chris right. Bryant had a very high strikeout rate. But Mookie Betts, despite most of the Red Sox striking out more than 100 times, right. Mookie did not strike out. And strange that the 100 number is, I think, a significant, but let's just say if you were Juan Soto, he wasn't far off being under 100 either. And so if you put together those two guys, Rondon and Soto, I think you have great 3-4 combination um, and it's hard to beat. So they had two starting pitchers and two guys that who could definitely hit home runs, but also put the ball in play. I think it's really right, important. Right, driving runs, but also at the same time having gutsy veteran yes. and role players who could just hit it. Adam Eaton was a huge part of that as well, along with Kendrick. So that, especially two through seven, hit the ball no matter what, and it just happened to work. I think that kind of proves it. And if you were to compare the, this Nationals team, who would you compare it to? I want to say... That's a hard comp. I, I, I want to say partly the Red Sox of last year because they, but then again, the Red Sox really won a lot of games last year. I think the biggest one I could see if we go really back, Arizona Diamondbacks. Arizona Diamondbacks. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely the two starting pitchers and key players that were able to drive in when they needed to put some runs on the board and then uh, have one MVP caliber player which in their case was Luis Gonzalez. And here you have Anthony Rendon. But also, I guess Juan Soto could be the case too. That, that's correct. I think Juan Soto was, he was a great player. He played like a veteran. He didn't panic and he was able to come through when he had to. And if we look at it in the in this decade era, Nationals were technically the underdogs of this whole yes. postseason. They weren't supposed to win anything. Does it remind you of one team? Because to me, it reminds me of the San Francisco Giants. Yeah, I, I, you know what? Nationals weren't too old. Uh, they weren't too young. They had enough veteran players to uh, lead the team, which I felt. You know, they had maybe just three young players. We were talking about Robles, Soto, and Turner. Right. But everyone else was fairly seasoned players, which is I think is important because in 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 comparison to a lot of the playoff teams, 
a lot of the other teams were much younger. Right, and they probably made maybe one or two playoff appearances. Exactly. Considering Houston had won the World Series two years ago, but we can say now they cheated their way. But <laughs> Right, officially, according, according to the source, was uh, Mike Fires. But even then, I think if you look at the uh, rest of the national yes. roster, most of them had postseason experience, right. at least three or four. Yes, the relief pitchers weren't eye-opening for the Nationals, but I think this time, I think experience played a part in their ability to win. And I think it's their personality this time around, their bullpen personality. They're not only team players, but I think they were really gutsy. Like Tanner Rainey, he has a horrible K to B ratio, but yet he somehow find a way to struck people out and get out of games, do little, same way. And I think the surprising one we talked about, mentioned earlier, Daniel Hudson. Daniel Hudson. A journeyman who somehow yes. became a closer for a postseason bound team and closed the game. The Nationals were able to lengthen the starters, shorten the bullpen game, which is contrary to what everyone was talking about, which is to have a greater emphasis on bullpen. Uh, and they went against the grain. Youth, lack of youth with, you know, with more veterans. We went all the way back, actually, to see why we thought the Giants was the best comp was in this Nationals team was the fact that both teams didn't have many guys who struck out that much, especially the Giants 2010, 2012, 2014 team. Bunch of veteran guys, but most of them was low strikeout rates with some of the young cores together. And the thing was, they didn't rely on too much bullpen, but mostly starting pitching. And they had two dominant starting pitching. And that's what we came kind of to a conclusion was the Giants and why the Giants, despite being an underdog, underachieving in a regular season, why did they get hot? Because they put the ball in play. Same was this Nationals team. So because we're ending this decade, who do you think was the team of the decade and why? Um, I mean, I could start off. I think despite them only winning one championship, cheating or not, Houston Astros is still probably the team of the decade was two pennants. Okay, so we're talking about a span of 10 years. Yes, from 2010 um, to 2019. I, I want to say the Red Sox, but you know what the Red Sox had they were in last place in the mix of those World Series, right? right? 2014 and 2015, yes. 2015. So that kind of... Because I want to... For me, the team of the decade shouldn't also Houston's, not, not, not be like the team that isn't that dominant right. and somehow got hot in the postseason. So Giants, while good team, they weren't that dominant right. in this whole decade. I think, okay, so we're talking about dominance. Okay. Dominant team that not only was successful in the playoff, but yet was just that team of the decade where they were so built up. Like we think about the 90s Yankees, you know, they were so built up right. despite not winning okay. everything. So for me, the team of the decade from despite cheating or not, still Houston because of their makeup and how they mm -hmm. built it up. Nationals could have been the team of the decade if they won a postseason series right. right here. Dodgers, I think would have been the number one pick if they won a championship this decade. Right. Yes, criteria winning at least one World Series is important. At least one World Series. Houston has won one. Houston has won two. San Francisco has won three. Three. But they, for me, the their con is that they limped into the series. They weren't right. dominant. They team. weren't dominant. The Dodgers. Dominant. Dominant, but they no, no World Series. Yes. So, um, Chicago, they got into that window and made the right strategy 
and then they started to sing, and, and they started to sing. But they have the novelty of of reversing the curse. <laughs> yeah, and they did. Yes, they did. Yes, yes, yes. So can we say that winning one World Series in what a hundred years? Hundred eight. Hundred eight years. Is is that the team of the decade? Boy, that's a tough question. I think in terms of pure, I mean, Astros currently in the past five years, they have definitely put it, a formula together, which is consistent. Whether they have cheated or not, that remains to be determined. Right. Statistically, I think Houston is definitely a team. Right. A team of the decade. A, a, yes. A team in the decade. I wanted to say Cleveland as well, but I think Cleveland. Cleveland uh, like was dominant maybe for one or two, two years. seasons and, um, and they kind of fell off the radar. Right. Which I think it just says a whole lot about the last 10 years is what Major League Baseball has, has come to is, is some reason of reasonable parity of teams not winning every year, which is what they don't want. But I do think that in terms of like getting to the World Series and competing, I have to agree with you, it is Houston Astros. Uh, even though I, they lose Garrett Cole this year, I still think maybe in the next five years they have this tremendous amount of philosophy that's driving their team. Will they win another one? Mm. Um, it'll be hard. Like I think they're going to be missing a couple of the criteria that we really talked about, which is two Cy Young Award candidate winner and one swing pitcher who could be not only a dominant starter but a really good bullpen arm to right. shorten the bullpen and you need two of the hitting components one who could hit and run as a scoring position and no strikeouts right more, more balls in play i think houston has played well with the current cba which is the collective bargaining agreement which is going to be renegotiated in a year or two yes yeah and so that could change the whole scope but I look at the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Red Sox who have all spent a huge amount of money. Oh, Dodgers this decade was disgusting. It was 300 million right, exactly. at the point. And so I want to give a little minus on that end. And so Houston has been able to do it within the CBA, which is a credit to them for being able to compete. I don't know if the Chicago Cubs went over. They haven't gone over, but they're close. They're close, right? And I don't know if San Francisco... The 2016 Giants kind of went over because, you know, all their cores are going through arbitration and they signed Johnny Cueto and Samarja right. to big deals. And that's uh, those are very much hurting the team yeah. right now. St. Louis has been under the CBA, so but they haven't won enough. enough. They, they've gone into it, but they also lost dominance in the last half of the decade. They were really good. In the early decades, 2010 through, what, 2015? 2015. They made the playoffs, and then they had skids where they didn't make any, and then they came, They finally made one right. this year. Right, right. Yeah, I have to go again. Houston, I think they have this ability to keep their philosophy of baseball going and be competitive through the season and in the playoffs. And I think they can replace a guy like Cole, can replace a guy like Verlander, and, and they can replace a guy like Springer because they have the ability to draft and develop players. Not so much the pitchers, but I think they know that they can just pick pitchers from other teams. Right. And dumped them was horrible prospects. Exactly, exactly. So I guess we agree that Astros is a team of the decade. Honestly, this uh, whole season was pretty much a really uh, 
fun season. It was a great season. Yeah. I, I think we didn't expect the Nationals to be winning the World Series. I didn't expect them to. I thought really the Red Sox would be as good as, as last year's Red Sox. But I thought, again, I think Houston was a, a given because they're in such a weak division. Besides Oakland, yeah. Besides Oakland. But next year might be different. I mean, Oakland isn't changing a whole lot. They should be as competitive as Houston. And maybe rest of the league, we might lose the chance of having super teams right. soon, especially if they start catching up to this. Analytic. Right, exactly. As we talked about the whole tanking, I think we realized that there's more and more parity. And so once you, when all the teams have tanked, how many, how do you get rid of players, right? Right. I mean, Baltimore can't tank anymore. <laughs> and, and neither can San Diego tank anymore. And there's very few teams that can tank. Miami is pretty much almost done. Right. It's, so I think essentially we got to see in next year's baseball to see what's going to really happen. There'll be a lot of teams that will be competing for the... I think I think the wild card will be very, very interesting next year. I think they'll go... There'll be more teams involved. Man, we're wrapping up season one here. Can you believe that? Uh, I can't believe it. It's been a tough season. Um <laughs> But it's been an interesting season. I think there's uh, we missed a lot, uh, but we've tried to fill in a lot too. So I definitely the game will continue to evolve, but I think it makes it much more interesting. We'll see if they'll we'll have the rabbit ball next year or not, or the juice ball next year, or, or some sort or of other some, controversy. Oh, other controversy, exactly. That wraps up season one of Sonar Baseball. Thanks to those who followed this season. We hope you had a great time learning about baseball and experiencing the game through our perspectives. And we'll be back for a second season in the spring. So stay tuned. Sonar Baseball is hosted and produced by me, Kazuki Akiba, and Tara Hori. This episode was edited by Kazuki Akiba with additional research and editing by Maria Tierney. Our theme song is by Kay Margus. Great laptop mixed the episode. Sonar Baseball is a production of Daylight Interactive and Media 3 Limited. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast as more people will know about this show. Go to daylightinteractive.com to see some exclusive updates and more about our upcoming shows. I'm Kazuki Akiba. And I'm Tara Hori. And this has been Sayonara Baseball.